Hi, I'm Chris Nessie from the House of EdTech podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm revisiting with Ted Dintersmith. That's right, you might remember him from a show a little ways back where we talked to him about his new book called What School Could Be? Insights and Inspiration from Teachers Across America. What School Could Be presents stories of teachers in ordinary circumstances doing extraordinary things. You're going to love this show today. It's going to make you think, it's going to make you feel good, and it's going to challenge you to want to do more. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Ted Dendersmith is a successful venture capitalist with an eye on changing school. His four-decade career spans technology, business, public policy, and education philanthropy. He earned a PhD in engineering from Stanford University, led a high-tech startup, and ranked as the top venture capitalist in the U.S. for the years 95 through 1999. Ted organized and funded Most Likely to Succeed, a feature-length documentary on education that was directed by Greg Whiteley. The film has been an official selection of 30 major film festivals, including Sundance. To date, more than 7,000 communities in some 35 countries around the globe have screened the film, using it as a resource to spark discussion and inspire change. He also co-authored with Tony Wagner a book with the same title, Analyzing Our Education System. Last year, Ted's new book, What School Could Be, was released, which chronicles his road trip to visit 200 schools across all 50 states during the 2015-2016 school year. He was intent on discovering inspiring educators, and that's exactly what happened. What School Could Be presents stories of teachers in ordinary circumstances doing extraordinary things. It's now in its sixth print run, available in paperback, and has been the top-selling education book since its release. Say hi to everyone, Ted. Hey, how is everybody doing? Well, I'm glad you're here, and I appreciate you joining me, and I love the book. It's awesome, and I appreciate you joining me again. This is, I can't believe it, but it's been just a little more than a year. I mean, it, February of 2018 is the last time we talked, and this is cool that here we are again. Um, yeah, no, it's exciting. We were a couple months from the release of the book when we spoke last, and so that's happened as well as other things. Yeah, it's so cool. So I'm looking forward to hearing some of the, the new stuff. So, um, but what I want to do before we uh, go any further and and talk about what's been going on is I want you to talk about this. In your about page on your website, you say this, I'm on a mission to help catalyze and accelerate progress in our schools. We need to equip our children with skill sets and mindsets that are essential in a world of innovation. I can't overstate how fast machine intelligence is accelerating. No school can be complacent. My travels have convinced me that our best path forward is to let our teachers do what they enter the profession to do, engage and inspire our kids and draw on the insights of our most innovative teachers. So what do you mean by this? Well, uh, so you did a great job of stating the fundamental thesis of what drives my life. Um, <laughs> so let's start with machine intelligence. I mean, it is, people just have no idea how fast it's moving ahead. And you know, we're within a 10, 20 year period when almost anything that people do today will be able to be performed by something automated in a fairly capable way. And so people are going to need some special something to gain an advantage. And they're also going to need to know, I think, in many, many areas, how to leverage machine intelligence. 
And yet, when I go to most schools, you know, the, the figure of merit, what will get a kid on the honor roll is if they can memorize material, replicate low-level procedures, and follow instructions. And when I meet with schools, I tee that up. I say, let me just ask, if a new student transferred here and they were good at those three narrow things, how would they do? And, and I give educators enormous credit for being very honest and open about this discussion, but they'll all val validate that those three things will get you on the honor roll. And that's exactly what machine intelligence does perfectly, instantly, essentially for free. And so what do we need to do? And I think really what I'm excited about as I travel, as I meet with people, as I see real progress being made is when we do trust teachers to engage and inspire kids and work in a very differentiated way with each child to find their specific distinctive path forward. And it is the antithesis of standardized committee-driven education. But I think that sort of is the fight for the heart of soul of what we do in our schools today. Do we standardize education so that all kids study the same thing and take the same exams so bureaucrats can compare kids across districts, states, nations, or do we invite kids and support teachers who will empower those kids to find the specific combination of things, their talents, their interests, their proficiencies, that launch them on paths that are meaningful to those kids? And you know, to me, it's crystal clear, but it's, it's not where we are for the most part in a lot of places across the country or around the world. Hey, right. It's, it's probably one of the most frustrating things as a former uh, principal, high school principal, dealing with uh, this, you know, this emphasis on everything's about a test score. And you're trying to look at uh, where, you know, what you're trying to help kids do and then looking at the world and inspiring them to think about what they want to do, could do, and uh, um, how to pursue it and things like this are, are kind of pushed to the side when uh, it comes to uh, um, you know, looking at these, these measures and how's everything measured. You know, uh, before we go, even further into talking, I got to make sure I say this because one of the things that I've heard you comment and uh, is that if a, a school system were to say, hey, Ted, my system would like to join you and your focus, you would provide the funding. Could you talk about your focus and if I got that part right about providing the funding? <laughs> well, you know, funding's a broad word in, in many <laughs> levels. and I'm, I'm definitely not in the category of a, of, of a Bill Gates. I mean, I, I, uh, I have no palace. I don't make you know, huge grants, but I've been doing my best to support schools, districts, uh, states. You know, I, I never, you know, unless somebody reaches me through my speakers bureau, in which case it's sort of difficult to extract myself from some level of fee for the engagement. You know, I don't charge for what I do. I don't even charge for expenses. I'll Skype in pretty much anywhere, anytime. And I'm giving away a lot of books, giving away DVDs, and I'm working just to establish proof points at a, a state level in a number of places across the country. So I've done a lot over the past three years in uh, Hawaii and North Dakota. Uh, we kicked off something in March in Virginia. Uh, I just had a meeting this morning here in Rhode Island. And, you know, I, I find if somebody embraces this, you know, I always start with how do you define success? And if the answer is some variant of better test scores, higher graduation rates, more kids into four-year colleges, I sort of say I don't think we're really destined to be good collaborators here because I think that's the wrong definition of, definition of success. I think when somebody says, I want each kid to find that combination of proficiencies and interest and passions 
and help work with that child for them to move forward out of K through 12 with a, a really fulfilling path forward in life and be able to create new paths as circumstances change. You know, then I'm like, what can I do to help? And I do my best to help. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't be everywhere at the same time. I can't write infinite checks, but I'm super supportive. I, I'm also, by the way, uh, looking for, I, this has been a point of frustration for me, but uh, back to these state mandated tests, I feel that it's just imperative that we start making the legislators that shove these tests down the throats of our schools, take the test and tell us how they did. I think that's a very fair request. And I mean, we're going to keep kids from graduating from high school over a set of state mandated exams. And by the way, when you look at most of those exams, the questions are just incredibly poorly posed for the most part. But if that's what we're going to impose on our, on our students, if that's how we're going to hold our teachers accountable, then legislators should take the test with a proctor and tell us how they did. Because if it keeps a kid from graduating high school, it sure as heck ought to be something that an adult with enormous amounts of power of the lives of our children can do well on. And, and I've been asking for that. Maybe somebody listening will, will uh, say, I'm, I'm game. I'll mount a, a statewide campaign and put this on the, the doorstep of our legislators. But I think that's, you know, we've got to be more aggressive in terms of fighting back for failed accountability measures. I love that. That's, and, you know, it's something that you mentioned it in your book as well, the idea of, you know, let's, let's put them to, you know, if they want to put these tests there, then they need to show us how they can perform on them as well. And then give us, you know, let us have that discussion about whether this really, that information matters or not. And I, I think that's very powerful of trying to, uh, looking at putting that together. They, yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean, I just sort of, it just sort of screams at us. Why is that an unreasonable request? I mean, if we're going to keep a kid from graduating high school because they can't get the hang of solving simultaneous equations, then legislators ought to show us that that's something they do regularly and they're really good at it as adults. And, and the reality is none of them can do those problems. None of, I, I would bet anything that if you gave every high school, I mean, every legislator in our country, the uh, high school final exam for Algebra 1, those scores would be dismal. <laughs> I mean, they would be, they would be so embarrassing. And, and I just say, like, okay, if it's not something you're using as an adult, if it's not something that makes a difference to many, many people in their career paths, why would that block a kid from a high school degree? I don't get that. I'm on there. I'm with you with that. The, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I want to make sure that we talk about is, uh, um, you know, it's been a year and a few months since we last talked. And at that time, what schools, what school could be was just being released by the publisher. Could you talk a little bit about your book launch, how it went and uh, what you, what you did to get the word out and, you know, all the good stuff that's been going on. Cause you, you kind of talked about something new happening there at the beginning. So, yeah. Well, I, I went back. I didn't go to all 50 states, but I went. I did a fairly comprehensive, you know, cross-country tour. I, I traveled pretty much nonstop for two months. Um, we, we, you know, we, we ran into an issue where um, about four weeks out of the, into the eight-week tour, we ran out of books. Um, so that was a bit painful. And, and we were out not for a day or two, but we were out of stock for about three weeks, um, which was, I think, a kind of one of those good news, bad news situations in the sense of there was a lot of interest. Um, you know, and, and then it's just gotten real traction. I mean, I, you know, I, I honestly think if there's credit for the book, books being interesting, I'd say let's give it to the teachers 
who were so kind and generous in sharing their stories with me. And, and I worked really hard to communicate those, to convey them in a way that was, um, you know, readable. I hope better than readable. Um, and I work really hard on my books. I mean, I'm like, I agonize over every word. But, but in some ways, I was really just listening to and learning from teachers, you know, administrators, but basically educators across the country. And when I saw things that just were stunning, as I say, teachers doing exceptional things in ordinary circumstances, um, I wrote about them. And I think that when you read it, you know, they're, they're all so different, which was sort of in some ways the point. And, and really, I think, underscores the fact that once you embrace creative differentiation instead of irrelevant standardization, it leads you to a completely different model of what school could be about. That's awesome. That's, you know, it's, it, it, your book itself is inspiring. And just, and if nothing else, just because of the words that is part of this, you're talking, you know, you're looking at teachers that are doing things that are, that are uh, inspiring, that are working with, with kids in a, I'm trying not to use the word outside the box. <laughs> and instead, I mean, but they are, it's complete, you know, they're teachers that are doing incredible things in, in these worlds and, and you're highlighting them. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, you get into is this idea that it's it's not because it's being driven by test scores or whatever. Instead, it's it's this idea of looking at uh, you know what they can do to inspire kids to do you know to to look beyond just uh, the the four walls of the classroom or whatever. And you know, one of the things that I want to make sure that I I say here is that early in the book you note educators can tr transform schools at scale with change models that establish conditions rather than mandate daily practice. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean there? Yeah, and, and I'm always apologetic for, you know, having a business background and being interested in education because so many people with business backgrounds, I think, make a mess of it, do all sorts of things that, that really, at the end of the day, were either irrelevant or damaging. So I feel like I've got to work extra hard to make up for a bunch of other uh, business people that are out there saying they care about education. Um, but I think in some ways my venture background is, is helpful in two respects. You know, one is um, I, I have a good sense of what kind of skills and mindsets young adults are going to need in a world defined by, driven by innovation. So I don't, you know, I respect that our educators, our teachers' ability to create great learning environments. They're master practitioners in terms of creating the great learning environments. But I think I know quite well, you know, back to what we started with a few minutes ago, is if a kid leaves school basically able to memorize material, replicate low-level procedures, follow instructions, that kid, whether they're an A student or a dropout, is in for a world of hurt. But also in innovation, I think I've got a good understanding of what really draws out the creative passions of people. And it is definitely not uh, some bureaucratic committee laboring away for five years to come up with a new AP course or... Uh, you know, Common Core has some good ideas in it, but it was sort of committee-driven, plopped down on the desk of teachers all across the country who had little or no say in it, who were suddenly told, this is what you have to do, and by the way, you're going to have high-stakes tests associated with it day one. Good luck. I mean, that's a terrible change model. I mean, that is just not the way we draw out the very best of people. What does it? I mean, I think it's when you invite people to set, have a voice to set their own goals, respect all sorts of different ways to achieve those goals, and celebrate when they make real progress. And 
And that's a grassroots creative change model instead of top-down central planning change model. And, and I'm deeply convinced that that is going to be the key to success in a school, in a district, even in a state. We may not get there nationally. I mean, I'd love to see some competence in, this, in the U.S. Department of Education, but, but it, you know, we haven't seen it for quite a while. I mean, it's not just today's train wreck, but it's, you know, I don't think that Obama you know, got it right. I think he had it quite wrong. And so we've sort of been dealing with a vacuum or worse at the top. Um, but some states are on the right issues. And people, I think, are generally getting, becoming convinced that the no excuses, tested measure, high stakes accountability model is a loser. You know, we set the wrong goal, which was improving test scores, and we failed in trying to achieve the wrong goal. And that's about as bad as it gets. That's, uh, yeah, that's just so uh, right on the money. And I'm sure right now there's a whole bunch of people standing up and applauding you <laughs> while they're listening. Um, hopefully they run their cars off the road or whatever. But we got, because that's, that's, you know, it just hits home with what we've been dealing with and seeing it over the years. You know, having had to have conversations with, with students and their families to say, you know, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, your child's not going to walk, not going to graduate. And we talked about this um, you know, a month ago or whatever, but it's they still didn't pass that part of the test, so therefore they cannot walk. And those those conversations were interesting. You know, in a state where they eventually did away with that, um, I kind of wish that uh, kind of like on some of those those old TV shows where the yeah the judge on the the show the people would sue for uh, damage, uh, whatever that uh, saying is uh, for uh, damages and uh, painful pain and misery. There we go. That's what yes, I'm looking for. You know? yeah. <laughs> Having to have those meetings with people where all they were missing was like, was a passing score on one test out of the four or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. that's rough, rough stuff. You know, I mean, I, I'm not opposed and nor do I find teachers opposed to high standards. I mean, I, I don't, as I travel, find teachers that say, uh, we, we don't want any kind of accountability. We're, we're against standards of accomplishment. That, that's not how teachers view it. They just want them to make sense. And, and I think they understand that, that I mean, they, they are really, you know, the experts that could, you know, could uh, create an authentic uh, accountability framework, as they did. And I read about this in New Hampshire, where New Hampshire trusted teachers to lead the way with performance-based and competent, easy for me to say, <laughs> I, I will incompetently say, competency-based standards, um, but they trusted teachers to lead the way. Teachers set higher, more demanding goals for themselves than any third party could ever impose on them, but they believed in them, a and they transformed that education system. I'd say 2009 to 2016 is school transformation at its finest in the state of New Hampshire, and you know, credit to Ginny Berry and to Tom Raffia, the school board chair, and to Maggie Hassan, but they basically set those conditions at the top and said, we trust teachers to help formulate something that they actually believe makes sense. And it is based on authentic portfolios of student work. Surprise, surprise. With a, an audit system to make sure that nobody's cutting corners. You know, it's like, we can do it. It's just, we don't want to. And, and who are the losers in that? And well, the losers are these, these test prep and test companies who I think are, are, just really ought to run up the white flag and say, we recognize we've been way more damaging than helpful in education in America. So we're, since we call ourselves a nonprofit, we're going to do the right thing and shut down. That would be interesting. <laughs> that would be. 
pleasant surprise, by the way, right there. The uh, I got to ask you. So you know, a little bit in your book, you get into this. What happened on February sixth, nineteen ninety two? Well, you're 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 pointing to one of the most fascinating meetings I had during that that travel year was with a a guy named Doug Lyons who. Uh, when I met him, he had a role in, uh, in Connecticut, but he described his life path where he spent 20 years, classroom teacher, and then I think principal, and then superintendent of a district in New Jersey, completely and totally committed to public education. And he came up to me at this event, and he just looked at me, and then this is a very dignified, I mean, he looks like he could be an ambassador or a governor, so you take him seriously. And he just said, February 6, 1992. That's all he said. And I'm like, I'm like, like, what is this about? You know, like, I had no idea. I said, like, pardon? And he said, February 6, 1992. And I said, you know, had he looked less dignified, I would have probably ducked out one way or, way or another. But I said, like, could you just explain what you mean by that? And it was the first day the New York Times published international test scores of U.S. kids versus other kids. And you go back, you can still Google New York Times, February 6, 1992, international test score performance. I think you'll get that story. But the U.S. was way down in the pack. And there were a million qualifiers with other nations not testing all kids, but a few kids, you know, the test being not that great. You know, a million reasons to just say, this is not terribly interesting information, but it just sets off alarm bells. And we're an uber competitive nation. And the last thing we want is to be middle of the pack. And isn't this terrible? And, and alarm bells. And it sort of ushered in the, the era. It sort of set the groundwork for an era that said, we got to get our numbers up. We've got to improve our test scores. And, and that has been the consuming drive in education for, you know, 25, 30 years, honestly. And uh, as I say, the, the numbers don't go up. I mean, that's what we set out as our goal. And I think what it misses is this incredibly important piece of the role of student engagement and the role of trusted and respected teachers. And we've sort of plowed those under in this, you know, frenzy to get higher test scores. And, you know, it's like, I look at that and I say, to what end, right? I mean, you're like, like some of these tests, I mean, the PISA test is actually pretty well designed. So I don't, I don't take issue, but do, do I'm re am I ready to go, you know, like, into a panic attack because we're not number one when, you know, we have a, a lot of other issues that enter in, including massive amounts of childhood poverty in our country that, you know, uh, you, you, that's a different discussion about how we could all feel fine living in a country that's in some ways the wealthiest nation on earth that lets so many kids live in poverty. Um, but, you know, there are a million extenuating circumstances I think that if, if we had kids racing to get to school every day because they were working on something they cared about, they would be developing those critical analysis and creative problem-solving skills that actually show up on the PISA exam, but don't show up on these state-mandated exams. But because the near and proximate measure of a school's success in most states and districts is those state-mandated exams, or one hop over but just as dismal, the SAT or the ACT, that's what school tends to revolve around. And back to February 6, 1992, what Doug related to me was, you know, he had a district that everything was going fine on the numbers and kids were really doing great things in class. And it was just sort of like a place you'd want your kid to be in school. And the abutting district started closing the test score gap. And they did some digging to find out what was going on. And in that abutting district, they had basically banned kids from reading 
full books. You know, they were drilling all day long on short passages and then questions like, what, what are signs of, of uh, author bias or, you know, like that, those kind of bullshit questions the SAT has. And, you know, the kids were getting good at that because that's what they were drilling on. And he just said it was heartbreaking. And, and I think that that's what we're doing to too many of our most courageous and visionary educators is holding them accountable to low-level tests that don't reflect much of anything but let legislators beat their chest and say, we're tough on schools and teachers and, and aren't we doing our job? That's, that's so powerful what you're talking about. I, you know, and it, it, it struck me. I love the way you introduced that topic because just like what you just said, you, you're like, is this man losing his mind? He's just going to talk to me about this date. And then, yeah, it actually was a you know, powerful discussion. That's pretty cool. So they, uh, and he wasn't losing his mind. They, uh, you know, what, one of my favorite recollections in the book is from Indiana, and it's where you share the comments of a former police officer who is now a kindergarten teacher. One of the things I think is cool is you describe him as rather large guy, I guess, <laughs> and uh, not of diminutive stature. And uh, he start, let's, let's start with this comment. He says, but I didn't want to do what the state tells teachers to do. And he also says a little bit after that, that he had a very supportive principal. Could you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, so this is Jared Nipper, and I met him in Fort Wayne uh, uh, probably early 2016. I stayed in touch with him. I saw him. Uh, I gave a talk at the Deeper Learning Conference in San Diego in March, and Jared was there, so we caught up. And, um, you know, he had, he had been in the police force for years, coached. Uh, he's a fanatic baseball and softball, you know, fan, as am I. Um, and so he was coaching girls softball, and he just sort of, became concerned that something wasn't right in the education process. And so he, you know, sacrificed, got his teaching credential, gets a chance to teach his own class. And I think one of the things he pointed to when we talked was that, that the state mandate for kindergarten was, I think the example he used was things like a 90 minute uninterrupted block of reading. And he said, you know, like do the people who write these requirements spend any time with five-year-olds, you know, like, not many five-year-olds want to spend 90 minutes in a row on their own reading some book, particularly if some bureaucrat picks the book for them instead of they get a choice in the book. And so he went to his principal and said, I, that's not what I want to do with my class. And so the principal said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, I think my kids would get really excited if they could design robots and get good at 3D printing. And the principal says, well, we have none of that equipment. How are you going to get around that? He said, well, I'm going to take these kindergarten kids out to the local community we're going to try to raise money with five and six-year-olds knocking on doors of businesses saying, will you give us a little bit of money to help us get this equipment? And the principal said, hmm, well, that might actually work. Okay. But he said, then he says, Jared, how much do you know about robotics and 3D printing? And Jared looks at him and says, I, I know nothing. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about this. But you know what? These kids will learn. And I'm not afraid to learn right along with them. And, you know, you just sort of watched it sail along in these kids, you know, and he'll say some of the kids did amazing work, some did okay work, but, but they were ahead of other kids on the reading and math because they had to do it to accomplish something they cared about. And, you know, it caught on. There are more people doing it. You know, Jared's story is interesting is that, that um, I think it was a year and a half ago, I got to get my school year boundaries aligned. He became principal of another school. Oh, wow. So it's not, it's not like, that risk-taking ended up hurting his career, he actually got a chance to do it at, the, at, the, at a school level. 
But when I talked to him about it, he did underscore the fact that his principal, when he started, basically said, I've got your back. He said, some people won't be happy about this. Some will ask questions. I'm behind you. And, and there's that power of an administrator to support that innovative teacher because if you were one of the few or maybe even the only innovative teacher in a school and there's sort of this constant level of grumpiness around you and parents whine about it and people are like saying, why are you doing that? And when I go by your classroom, kids are laughing and, and shouting, you don't have your classroom under control. And, you know, I mean, you know, like at a certain point, you just get tired, I think. And, and I don't blame teachers. It can be exhausting without support. But in his case, the principal said, I've got your back. The kids were on fire. And, and it's that fundamental point that if you get the engagement piece right, the learning follows. If you decide what a kid has to learn and just going to shove it down their throat no matter what, it's a much more difficult proposition. And, and what I find, and this sort of gets at the achievement gap, is what I find in, in that top-down, here's what you have to learn and you're going to do it model, that the kids who have tenacious parents will somehow make it through generally. They may not be happy. They may lose their curiosity and their audacity and their joy of learning. But those parents will one way or another push or bribe or cajole or tutor their kids through that process. And the kids growing up in tougher home circumstances are sort of cut loose. They don't care about the material. It's very difficult for a teacher to bring some of this stuff to life. No parents pushing them daily, hourly. Nobody's bribing them with an iPhone if they get a certain grade. And they sort of spin out from this. It, 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 it's boring to them. And, and when they ask, when am I ever going to use it? The honest answer is, in a lot of cases, you're not. And, and so you look at that and you say, well, what if we just said, first and foremost, we want kids to be really excited about what they're learning and give them some voice in it. I, I really question, what would, what would the downside to that be? Yeah, that's, that's a good question right there. What <laughs> That's an awesome question right there. Hey, another one of my favorite stories from the book is the U.S. Naval Academy and the difference between the way they were training Navy pilots versus the Air Force training for pilots. Could you share a little bit about this story? Yeah, you know, I, I visited there. That was, again, during that travel year, and, and my team set me up for a day there. And, and this is sort of a shame on me, you know, uh, admission, which is, I said, this will be interesting. I'm really curious. But every expectation I had was that this would be as traditional an education institution as I could imagine. I mean, it is the U.S. Navy. I mean, this is the Naval Academy. It will be as by the book as any place I could visit in America. I ended up writing it may be the most innovative education institute in our country. And, you know, before I get into the contrast between Navy and, and Air Force fighter pilots, you know, one of the things they did, which I think is so interesting, is that they started by completely rethinking their college admissions. And, you know, Rear Admiral Ted Carter, who I think is still the head, but it was the head at the time and was really generous in sort of filling me in on what steps they had taken. They just said, we used to just look at test scores, grade point average, Eagle Scout, letters from senators or Congress people. That was sort of what determined who got in. And we became convinced we weren't getting our best possible next generation of, of leaders for the United States Navy. And so they reoriented priorities and they started looking for tangible evidence that this was the kind of person that just wouldn't take no for an answer 
in creating and then implementing solutions to make problems in the world better, to address problems, to create new opportunities. And you know, when I, when I say someone who just won't take no for an answer in a, their personal mission to make their world better, I think most people, when they hear that, say, that's what I'd love to see in my kid. That's what I'd love to see in my neighbor or family members. That's what I'd love to see in, uh, you know, elected officials or local businesses, you know, and, and like, so why don't we look for that in admissions? And the Naval Academy does, and they were excited about diversity going way up. The, the uh, performance through the Naval Academy was much better. Uh, the, the, they were really excited that year that the, that, I think it was 30% of the entering class, this was like three years ago, three and a half years ago, were female and not one dropped out during their 12-week summer boot camp. Um, but what, what Ted Carter explained is that the, in the fighter pilot realm, the Air Force was, now if anybody's listening who's in the Air Force, they may say that, that I don't know what I'm talking about. So and I don't want to put this on Ted Carter because I may have misunderstood. But he said, you know, the Navy was far more innovative and creative. And, and he explained that, uh, that every time they did a mission, when they came back, they'd all talk about what the mistakes were they made that day. And he would lead. So the leader of that mission, that flyover or whatever, would say, I screwed up on this and somebody else. And they really made it a celebration of mistakes that turned into what we can do better instead of we can't tolerate a single mistake. So of course, when you come back, there will have been no mistakes. And he talked about a number of their innovations that really improved their effectiveness as, as uh, squadrons. And I think it's really that mindset of, you know, should school be about challenging people in the face of ambiguity, maybe even odds that seem insurmountable, and encouraging them to try one thing, redirect, try a second thing, redirect, try a third thing, and just keep pushing on it until they have some result they're proud of, should that be the heart and soul of school or should it be drilling on things to take some test that depends on whether you know the definition of a word like obsequious or you could factor polynomials quickly without making a mistake. And I don't think we do enough of the former and I think we do a lot of the latter. And I think it's to the detriment of our kids. And I think teachers know that. I think that when I say this, teachers aren't saying, oh my God, I never thought of that. I think what if anything, they're surprised about is that somebody with a business background actually gets it and, and has the, the guts to say we should be trusting our teachers instead of dictating to them what they have to do. Excellent. Excellent. I, and it's, uh, it's so cool because I can imagine the thoughts of going into, I, I got to echo what you said originally, you would think that, a, that an academy like that would be the bastion for, <laughs> for all the straight rows and thinking in one way and then instead to see that had to be a, uh, the opposite. You know, but one, one other thing they did, and this is worth sharing, is that they basically went on the war path and got rid of all the boring, weeder-outer, lecture-based intro courses, which there are a lot of, even our most selective colleges, there's usually this barbed wire fence kids have to climb over to get to anything interesting, which is, you know, the massive lecture hall with some professor talking at the students, take, and then they take notes, got to memorize it and say it back, and, you know, basically reflect back the teacher's wisdom and if they don't do it well they they can't keep going and you know they got rid of that most of the the learning experiences on the naval academy were socratic seminar or project-based you know learning experiences and so i think that you know because i think there's a lot of bad pedagogy in college that then encourages more bad pedagogy in high school right on right on the money they uh 
something that you say in the book that I've posted in my office, by the way, you say this, I find though that many people, especially those in positions of influence, strive to do things better, which in practice amounts to do obsolete things better. <laughs> Could you talk about this? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, you sort of think about it. I mean, I, I, after the trip, I, I didn't start the trip thinking I'd write a book. And when I got done, I sort of said, I think I ought to. And, and, but I went through a process of, you know, I actually wrote a draft where I kind of, you know, it was like day one, I went here, the day two, I went there, the day three, I went there. I spent a fair amount of time writing that book and, and I got to the end and I threw it out. Because um, it just, I don't even think it was that interesting to me and, and doubt if it would have been interesting even to my wife, let alone anybody else. But it made me, it forced me to sort of step back and say, what did I really learn from this year? What were the patterns? What, what sort of showed up? And, and not all, but many of the people kind of at the top of the education pyramid, you know, the people that, you know, you know, are the high senior execs at the testing companies or are quote unquote nonprofits, although that's arguable about how charitable they really are, or in state bureaucracies or the federal bureaucracy. I'd say very often, first of all, they were very educated. They often have education PhDs. So they think of the world in terms of academics. They think of the world in terms of more education, formal, costly education being better. They think that school works because it worked for them. And the second is they've sort of clawed their way to a top of a bureaucracy. So they do what bureaucrats do, which is they look for data. You know, that's the way you manage your bureaucracy is you look for data. I mean, there's this ad running now, and I, I love it every time I listen to it, but it's, you know, Michael Bloomberg believes if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And, and Bloomberg Philanthropies, we've done great work in a whole set of things. What they leave off the list of what they've done great work in is education. And the reality is Bloomberg did not do good work in education. I, I think his work was a mess there. Because I think in schools, if you can measure, it's probably not very important. I think that's a quote I, I used in my book from Brene Brown. And I agree with it. You know, like if once you start to measure and particularly make it high stakes, you're only perverting the system. This is this uh, Goodhart's law that I love, which is when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And, and I think we do that a lot when it comes to schools. And, and it's not the teachers doing. They, they don't want this. They're not the ones saying, bring on these, these uh, you know, the, the reports that are in magazines or newspapers annually that rate schools in a community that put some of the schools doing the most amazing work at the bottom of the list because their kids come to school every day hungry. You know, their kids are dealing with unimaginable challenges at home, but this will be ranked as a failing school because their test scores aren't that high. I mean, come on. Like, we could do a lot better job of understanding the nuance of trying to help kids make their way forward in life that goes beyond test scores and AP course coverage. <clears throat> but I think that's it. And so you look at these, and I sort of found, particularly at the state level, I, I met most, I mean, maybe half of the state commissioners of education. And there were sort of half, I say, were the do obsolete things better. You know, better test scores, higher graduation rates, more kids into four-year college, everything's fine and never taking responsibility for the large number of kids who start down the path of four-year college and never finish and, you know, drop out of an anonymous college with 35K of student loan debt. I mean, that's not 
progress. You know, let's be very direct about that. That kid is really screwed over. And then you meet people, you know, like a Ginny Berry in New Hampshire that really bring a, a degree of audacity and vision and clarity <clears throat> to trying to solve a very different problem and, and really are heroes in our country. When we look at, uh, I mean, I just hope that listeners that you're, digesting this because you got to read it because you got to see all these examples one of the things that uh, ted talked about was instead of doing something where you just said on day one through day whatever i was in these different places instead you take the different experiences you have and kind of group them together which is a which is a cool way of reading uh, which makes it awesome to read the book because it's not like that it's not like just a daily journal or something like that and instead we have the uh you know th these ex common experiences that uh, make you actually give you uh gave me some goosebumps about this is cool look at what they're doing and and uh you know it makes you excited that there are people who not only can do these things are being supported by others to uh to like you said earlier with that one gentleman's principle protect them or have their back to so that they can uh be innovative and creative to help uh inspire the kids to want to do and uh to figure out uh, what's exciting to them that type of thing so and it's worth noting here, one of my friends is Passi Salberg, who architected the education transformation in Finland. And I think I have it in the book, but I relate, you know, a conversation I had with Passi where I said, Passi, where, where does Finland get its best ideas? And he said, oh, that's easy. We get them from the United States. It's just we do something with them and you don't. <laughs> and so my book is essentially about education in America. The examples are all from American schools. Almost all, by the way, you know, traditional public schools, you know, like I think out of uh, it's at least 90 percent of the inspiring examples I present are from, you know, mainstream public schools. And a lot of people say public schools, they'll never innovate. Well, that's total bullshit. Or people will tell me you'll never see any change in school because of these teachers unions. Yet, you know, like I was la this time last year, I went to Minneapolis. I was NEA's, you know, 2018 Friend of Education recipient. You know, I think teachers are, you know, there are a lot of teachers itching to innovate. There is a lot of pent-up innovation in our teaching force. And I think we, the rest of society, needs to stare directly at the fact that we have made life miserable for our teachers. You know, we don't teach, you know, we don't pay them enough. We don't trust them enough. We don't support them. And it's not okay to occasionally, you know, applaud a teacher at a, at a baseball game when they're announced or something. You know, like, like we'll do the same thing with teachers we do with people serving their country. You know, we'll, under the right circumstances and the right settings, say, oh, that's great. Well, that, that's fine, but let's back it up, right? I mean, let's really respect the expertise of the people that are the real professionals in the world of education. And, you know, I, I go out of my way, you know, I don't really care. I mean, when I'm introduced at something, I generally say, don't say anything, just Google me. You know, just tell the audience they can Google me. You know, they'll, they'll know. Um, there, there are really not a lot of Ted Dintersmiths running around the universe. Um, you know, but, but I really go out of my way to say, please do not call me an education expert. You know, like I'm a student of it. I do my best to learn about it. Um, but, you know, like last week I was at the uh, induction ceremony at the National Teachers Hall of Fame in Emporia, Kansas. I mean, those, these are the people that the experts, I mean, like, you know, like they don't need me to tell them anything, you know, they, they need me to sort of clear out obstacles if I can. I mean, you know, they need all of us to do that, but you know, I, I don't know. I just feel like it, it pisses me off when business people weigh in on education 
without doing their homework. And, you know, I'll say to them like, Hey, I've got a great idea. How would you feel if your company's board of director consisted entirely of teachers telling you how to run your business? And they say like, well, that would make no sense. I mean, what do teachers know about business? And I say, well, you know, like stop telling them how to run their classrooms. Come on, give me a break. You know, like I, last time I checked, Microsoft's board was not consisting entirely of teachers. I don't, I don't, I doubt if any time in their entire history, they've had somebody who was a classroom teacher on their board, probably should, by the way. But, um, you know, so Bill, stop telling teachers what to do. If, if you know, I, I like the phrase, eat your own cooking. If it's okay for you to tell teachers what to do, then set up circumstances where teachers can tell you what to do. I like that. I like that a lot. That's uh, good stuff right there. I think, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm former Army and Army has, uh, like, like to say, hoo-ah. So <laughs> that's, that gets a good, good hoo-ah <laughs> from us. So uh, good stuff there. The, uh, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure that uh, I bring, that I talk about is that, you know, you've got to, you've got to take time to read Ted's book. It's, it's got all kinds of great, you're going to be inspired just by reading what these teachers are doing. And it, it's going to make you want to be in the classroom and say, okay, I can do this. Or if you're at the, in the leadership position, it's going to make you say, I, I can, I need to be able to support, I, I need to stand up and say, yes, start doing some of this stuff. Let's figure this out. The, uh, uh, one of the things that. Uh, uh, I, uh, if I could jump in. Okay. The learning, I think that one of the things that's important and one of the, the insights I've gained from teachers I've, I've spent time with is learning is not, coming from creating the ideal final classroom learning experience. There's so much learning that comes from that journey. And so if you decide to try, give you an example is, you know, and we have this resource called the innovation playlist, which is trying to capture best practices in the field and organize them, support them with great videos, and then offer them to schools and districts and states as kind of a loose suggestive resource that supports teacher-led innovations based on small steps to lead to big change. But an example would be supposing that you believe, and I, I, I would ascribe to this, that having at least some amount of student-to-student -student discussion in a classroom, some, some amount of time set aside for Socratic seminar is probably on balance a good thing. Uh, I'm not here to say every teacher should. I'm here to say, yeah, I think it's really interesting and I think it's worth trying. But you know, like, you know, it's not that the first time you try it, it needs to be perfect. It's actually that journey of learning, experimenting, iterating, learning, you know, trying again, iterating, redirecting again, always trying to make it a little bit better, adapting it to a new set of students, a new topic, a new everything. Is it ever going to reach its final destination? No, it won't. But that process, that path, I think that's where so much profound learning comes from. And if it's not the teacher dictating, but the teacher working collaboratively with students to, to say, what can we do to make an even better set of circumstances here so that students are directly engaged in debating other students on topics that they find quite interesting? You know, it is dynamic. It is always evolving. But I think that's where amazing amounts of learning come from. And I think once we say the first time won't be perfect, the last time, there will be no last time. It will never be perfect. But it will be interesting. It will be revealing, and it will be engaging. That's powerful. It is powerful, and that's that's probably one of the greatest, the neatest things about working with kids when you're unleashed with the idea that you're helping to create an environment where it's okay to 
fail as we try and proceed, including for the teacher, <laughs> because when the, the kids see that as you're learning with them, I mean, it's, it's, it's powerful because the kids want to do more and try more. And uh, it's an exciting uh, um, setup then for, for what's in that classroom, what's going on in the classroom or the building itself. You know, one of the things that uh, you've, you've alluded to this a couple of times, and I just want to make sure I brought it out. On your webpage, there's a link to an article that was written in 2015, and it's titled, Not Bill Gates. <laughs> and I was just wondering if you could just kind of kind of help us there, because I think there's something good to go back to that you mentioned, which is the idea that uh, you're not really lumped in, you don't want to be lumped in there with uh, some other colleagues. Yeah, I mean, that, that was, a, there's a great journalist who does answer sheet for the Washington Post, Valerie Strauss. And uh, um, we met, I think, around my film, and we had a chance to talk. And then she wrote a piece about, you know, my approach. And, you know, honestly, my thinking in 2015 has evolved, you know, it's evolved today is quite different from what it was in 2015. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to understand better. And, and if I'm wrong, trying to, to be more informed and more on target. But um, I, I think it was, maybe I'm not Bill Gates because I, you know, I don't have nearly as much money. I mean, that, that's one way. I'll tell you on that. You know, like, if you looked at my bank account, you would absolutely in about a second say, not Bill Gates, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, and, and this will sound harsh, but I think I like, so be it. I mean, you know, like I, I don't feel it's responsible philanthropy to decide in a commit you know a room or in a uh, a 500 million dollar palace that we've got the answer this is what has to happen in the next seven years in education and then seven years later right oops none of it worked uh, but we rolled the dice and now we know this is what we need to do the next seven years and then seven years later write another letter saying oops none of it worked but we've rolled the dice again and we've got a different idea i mean like you know like stop telling people what to do and start helping them do what they want to do. And I think that's a world of difference. And, you know, a lot of people will say Bill Gates was a great entrepreneur. I really would question that. You know, what, how entrepreneurial was Microsoft? I mean, they did a great job of arbitrage on their initial operating system and made that a huge success. And they, they had enough of a, of a dominant market position they could, could go through release after release after release to get something finally pretty good. You know, but Steve Jobs was a great entrepreneur. Bill Gates was a very effective, smart, shrewd, even ruthless business person. And uh, but I think that command and control as CEO of a big company versus for me, you know, like what did I do? I tried to find people who had great dreams and be supportive and letting them pursue those dreams. You know, uh, I, I was not trying to tell everybody what they had to do. I was trying to be supportive in letting them do what they felt was important to do. And I think that's a big difference in mindset. And I, and I really encourage, you know, state commissioners or district superintendents, um, principals, teachers, you know, like let's help understand what is important for an individual. What, what did they want to accomplish with their next month, with their life, whatever, and, and support and empower them to do it. And, and, you know, is it just, free range. I mean, you know, if a kid says what I really want to do is just play 12 hours of video games a day. I mean, that's, that's clearly not okay. So I'm not just, I'm not stupid when it comes to that. But these kids have things they're interested in. These teachers have great ideas for how they'd like to create powerful learning experiences. And so I think like, man, let's start trusting them and learning. And 
and start looking at the real evidence. And so if a kid has, is setting out to be a great musician and three years later, they can't play chopsticks, I think we need to work with that kid to say, maybe that's not your power alley. Um, if a teacher thinks they've got a great learning experience and the, none of the kids get it and, and the work quality is miserable, I think you got to say, we need to pivot from this, but let's do it on the basis of real evidence and informed assessments and not, not just telling everybody this is what we've decided you have to do. But particularly, honestly, when you look at so many of these tests and you say, what do they really get at? If a kid works really hard to get good at these, does it translate to any kind of a better set of skills or, or mindsets for later in life? And I think the, the preponderance of evidence is that most of these tests don't align with anything important later in life other than maybe modestly rearranging the pecking order for college applications. So I got I to gotta make sure that, because uh, we're, we're about to finish up, and I wanted to make sure that I ask you this. If a listener would like to reach out to you and learn more, what would be the best way? Well, um, you know, so my website is just my name, teddentersmith.com, and there's a lot of the stuff I do there. I'd love for anybody listening to check out the Innovation Playlist. We're, we're just really excited about that, its potential. Um, and that's got a lot of resources, including the film Most Likely to Succeed is on there for free. And so I, I do my best to make everything I do free or as close to free as possible. Uh, in my last newsletter, I, I sort of said anybody who wants some copies of the book, what school could be, I, I got back from the publisher the paperback rights. And so it's a lot less expensive for me personally to donate books than it was before, where I found myself for a year, if I gave some books to somebody, it was costing me $20 a copy for a book I wrote, wow. which, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I've got a much lower, you know, donation point for that. Um, and then my email, I mean, I'll just say, you know, it's like first initial, last name. So tdintersmith at gmail.com. And, you know, I'm not, per I'm definitely not perfect at getting back to emails. I get a lot of emails each day, but I, I try. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, so whatever I could do is, I, as I say, and I'm really interested in, as I say, that, I mean, I'm going to repeat it, but if, if a set of people said, we're going to mount a petition and go right at our legislators and make them take our state mandated tests that keep kids from graduating from high school. We have a well thought out plan, but we need some money to do it. I am a great person to approach with that because I think, I think if one state did it, it would be so revealing that I think then people in another bunch of states would do it. And I think it's, you know, I think it's what we've missed in some ways with the opt out movement, which is, you know, great, some kids aren't taking the test. And, and if I were a parent, I'd probably explain the situation to my kid and like my, let my kid make the decision. A lot of times I go to these places where students are opting out and I'll say, so I'm curious, why did you not take this test? And the student will say, well, my, my mother or father or my parents told me not to. Well, you know, like, is that really helping kids become critical thinkers? You know, like, I don't know about that. But, um, but I think rather than opting out, I think let's make it symmetric. If you're making our kids do it, then you do it. And, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Le legislator, and let's have a proctor and let's publish your scores. And then let's have a hearing where you explain to us why not one member of the education committee passed their, you know, their math exam. Okay. You know, I mean, like, like none of you did. None of you can get out of high school based on this score. Um, Help us understand why this is a good test. You know, 
And, and guess what? Guess what? I think you get it, you know, legislators' attention in a hurry, and, and voters should know that. You know, like we're trying to put these legislators, make the commitment. I will vote in my committee to do this. We will do it. And if you don't, that should be an issue when we vote for those legislators. You know, like they want our kids and teachers to eat a meal, but they won't eat it themselves. Let's get them out of office. I think that's fair. Uh, it's very fair. Right on the money. So, you know, if uh, um, I got a last couple of questions here. And one works like this. What advice would you give to teachers to encourage them to take risks and be innovative, inspiring, and engaging with the kids they teach? Well, you know, and it's, it's, I'm very aware of the fact that, that as a guy sitting in Rhode Island doing a podcast, it's the easiest thing in the world to me to say, go for it because it'll all work out. And, and when you're actually doing it and when your evaluation is on the line or when parents are pissed off or whatever, you know, like you're in the front line of fire and I'm not. Um, I will say two or three things. One is I do find over and over again where that when a teacher creates a learning environment where kids just can't wait to be there, where they want to stay late, where their mind is racing a million miles an hour while they're in school, those test results tend to take care of themselves. Easy for me to say, but by and large, not even by and large, I mean, I, that's almost without exception, I get that feedback from teachers who do that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I would really encourage them to check out the innovation playlist. We have, it's sort of organized like Spotify with albums and tracks or songs. And we have one that's really mobilized and energized your community. And I think that innovation, if you're the only one or if it's a handful, it can be grueling. It can be tiring. You can feel at a certain point I've had enough. I, I don't want to keep pushing the rock. But if it suddenly is a lot of people and if you shift parents thinking and they suddenly say, this is better, we're excited about this, it can be really contagious. And so you know, the beauty for schools is that we don't have to wait for, you know, somebody in Arnie Duncan or Betsy DeVos's role to make sense. You know, I mean, like, maybe in 2021, we'll have somebody in that position who makes some sense, but let's just count on the fact we won't, you know, that they'll continue to be, you know, kind of completely clueless. Um, who cares? You know, like, there's so much progress that could be made at the school level. And, you know, that's the beauty is Change happens at the school level one at a time. Global warming, we need a lot of people to act in concert. Schools can make enormous amounts of progress on their own. And so if you get that school community to rally around a different vision of education and start celebrating these safe, small steps that lead to more innovative learning environments, you will make enormous amounts of progress. And I'm seeing that in schools. I'm seeing it in districts. I'm even seeing it at the state level all across our country. So. I have a great degree of optimism for what we can accomplish. And so I think that, you know, as I say, misery love co loves company, but also bold innovation loves company. And so if you're a teacher itching to do it, recruit some allies, get your community to realize that this is not just a nice to have, this is really essential to kids, you know, being able to create their, their own fulfilling life path going forward. And, you know, start, you know, start tomorrow. Don't start next year. Don't bake it into a strategic plan, but get the puck on the ice with some small steps that lead to big change over time. Love it. Excellent advice. Excellent. The uh, last one. Here we go. What is one way, what, what is one takeaway from reading what school could be you would want a teacher or principal to remember? <laughs> 
That, I've gotten a lot of questions about this book, and that's the first time I've gotten this question, and it's a great question. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I would say not only can you do it, but you're probably already doing it. You know, if, 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 if we went around almost any school in America and said, can we find great things going on where kids are learning joyfully in a way that they're retaining it and developing essential competencies we will find it. Now, it could be an after-school initiative, could be some of the class experiences, but we don't have to go to Finland. You know, it is happening in niches here and there all across the country. And that's one of the reasons I intentionally wrote a book, picking great examples from every state. It, it is happening, and it's not there with those people under those circumstances. It's right under our noses. And let's start understanding the power of what's going on, celebrating it, and using that to inspire other, you know, really interesting changes that are, you know, innovations, but not bet the farm innovations. I, I'm a big fan of these small steps that lead to big change. And just get people energized around what happens when kids own more of their learning and more of their learning is aligned with the real world. And I think if we can do that, will it be perfect? No. Will it ever be final? No, it is a, a path we're on, but it's a really exciting path that's, that's absolutely laden with setbacks and ambiguity, but that, at the end of the day, is the point. I love it. Awesome. Uh, Ted, it's been incredible talking with you today. I, you know, I cannot uh, tell people enough about uh, um, your book. They need to pick up a copy of What School Could Be, Insights and Inspiration from Teachers Across America. It's going to make you feel good about what you're doing and thinking about what you could be doing. And uh, I uh, applaud you for uh, throwing some challenges out there. This is a, it's been a good conversation. I greatly appreciate your time today. Well, awesome. And thanks for what you're doing. I mean, this is a labor of love that you're engaged with, and it's really important. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Hey, have you got some thoughts, questions, or ideas? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me through my email at stephenmiletto at gmail.com. Stephen spelled with a V, and Mileto is M-I-L-E-T-T-O. And that's at gmail.com. Or if you're in the United States or Canada, you can call my Google Voice number at 478-353-5471. Love to hear from you. Thanks. Take care now.